child, I spent a lot of time at the big office building, just reading books. My mom insisted I stay in the highway on-ramp to finish my education. So she dropped me off the office building before going to her second job. She didn't want me working at the vacant lot like my dad. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Answer the President's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a Senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Ed Ayers. He's the president of the University of Richmond, the author of numerous books on civil war, including In the Presence of Mine Enemies, The Civil War in the Heart of America, 1859 to 1863. And we talked in our first segment about uh, growing up in the South, moving from there to New Haven, Connecticut, to study at Yale, and the uh, impact that has on identity as a Southerner and, and what it means to be Southern. Um, that we were talking just at the end there about the uh, the impact of the Vietnam War on uh, academia in the United States and the uh, the disappearance of the Civil War as a, tar- a topic for academic historians. Uh, since the Ken Burns revival, uh, there's been plenty published on the Civil War in the last two decades, but much of it is from uh, uh, from amateur historians or, or, or non-professionally trained historians, uh, however one wants to describe it. Uh, it is, is the Civil War back yet as an academic subject, uh, and, and is Vietnam what kept it away for so long? You know, I think a, a congruence of things uh, kept it away. It certainly is back. Um, you know, perhaps it's just because I started paying more attention to it, but I'm just struck by the quality and the uh, sophistication and the goodwill of the, the community of academic Civil War historians. Ironically, I think one thing that uh, kept academics away is the presence of everybody else. <laughs> you know, the fact that it's, we don't have a monopoly on it and, it, and the kind of perverse logic uh, that uh, if other people are doing it, it's not just our property and therefore devalued in some way. And, of course, i found that that's been one of the exciting things to be, reasons to be involved in working on the Civil War, that there's such a large 
number of people who are not academics who find it fascinating and who know so much about it as well. So I think we've gotten through all that, and people recognize now it's a, a quite legitimate subject and it's fascinating. And, reveal, and you can't understand America without understanding the Civil War. And I find very little resistance to that or to my graduate students who are out on the job market. I think that uh, there was a stretch there you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, that people didn't want to write about the war. But now I find that it's something that people are really, the graduate students are interested in again. So I think whatever aversion we had to it as a result of Vietnam seems to have passed, um, and it's back alive and kicking. Well, that's, that, that's a reassuring thing to hear, and you would know from your perspective uh, as, as a, a dean and now a university president. I will say... Uh, I was last on the job market five years ago, and I applied for a job that was advertised as Civil War history mm-hmm. and gave a talk in which I described the, the social structure of the Army of the Ohio that was the subject of my dissertation. And it was very much not the drum and trumpet traditional military history. But when all was said and done, they hired someone else, and uh, a friend of mine later uh, in that department later said, well, the thing is, your work was too Civil War. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> I know. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if you take, I mean, in all honesty, you know, people wouldn't think, I mean, I don't claim myself as a Civil War historian only because I have such respect for what it means to really know all of that. And, of course, having been Gary Gallagher's colleague for, you know, a decade, mm-hmm. I saw what real Civil War historian looks like, <laughs> and I've never claimed to be that. So Gary gets annoyed at me when I say that, because, and it's not false modesty. Um, it's just that it requires a... Um, uh, a command, so to speak, of a degree of detail that uh, you just don't pick up without really concerted effort. It's like being a legal historian or a, uh, an economic historian, it seems to me. And so I'm really a social historian who has t- just been working on the Civil War for 15 years. <laughs> and so I know that sounds insane to people, but um, that's, I, I say that just would all due respect to what it really means to be able to do all the things associated with the military aspects of the war. So I feel like I know the social history pretty well, and I can, you know, I've written textbook chapters on the Civil War, and Gary and David Blight, and I did the Appomattox, you know, National Park Service book and stuff like that. So, you know, I know enough to get by, but don't really ask me about, you know, you know, the military aspects of, of the details of it, because it's it's just something that's, it requires really decades to master, I think. It, it, it does, and and there are people who, who commit their lives to it. There are those uh, uh, the books by Harry Fonz on Gettysburg. Where you've yeah. got 600 pages per day. Uh, for me, a little of that goes a long way. I, I, I don't quite feel the same urge to learn that much about uh, one day of, of fighting in that. But I'm glad somebody knows it. But somebody does. That's you, right. You know? And, and, and that's what I mean. I, I, I say it, I don't really want to be uh, an economic historian either, but I recognize the centrality of economics to to all that makes history move. Just in the same way that I understand the centrality of military events to all that makes a war. So, you know, I think that's what we've gotten over is that people have respect for the other kinds. But you, you are right that uh, most historians would think that if you that. Just a military historian does not have a capacious enough vision to do to be, you know, in the guild. So it's it's a prejudice and an unfounded one. But it, and we are still and the academy still is given to various kinds of fads. There's no about that. Now it's cultural studies. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, I, I'm kind of, you know, being an American studies person back from the 70s, you know, I'm sympathetic to edge. that. But, yeah. you know, anyway, it's, I think, I, I'm struck, the history in general doesn't have a, a defining fad right now. Uh, there's a time of eclecticism, and that makes space for the Civil War. It, is memory the fad now? I think that's past. That, that's coming, oh, I'm, yeah. we're, we're a little behind here at ECU. We're <laughs> well, it just strikes me that, you know, I'm not sure, you know, it burned hot and heavy for a while. This is partly you know, advising graduate students and seeing what they care about. I, right. I think they don't think that there's a dominant thing right now either, which means that everything's okay if you can think of something interesting to say about it. That uh, is interesting. The um, uh, oh, quick question before we go any further. Yeah. My lawyers say uh, I need to ask if you're related to William Ayers, the uh, <laughs> terrorist. No, I, I have pointed out, uh, however, that one uh, side benefit through all that, at least people have an idea how to pronounce my name now. Ah. Uh, but no, no, no relation. <laughs> ah, very good. Um, while uh, we're talking about, about fads uh, or, or trends, uh, yeah. cutting edges, uh, one cutting edge that is hardly a fad uh, is technology. And I wanted to ask you about that because sure. uh, you're, you're a real pioneer in that uh, your, your Valley of the Shadow project that some of our listeners will, will certainly be aware of for you looked at communities in the Shenandoah Valley and put the results of the research not into book form originally, but into uh, electronic form. Right. Uh, really changed a lot of historians' ideas of what, uh, what research was and, and, and what, uh, what can be done with sources after you've found them, rather than just extract a narrative with quotations. But uh, uh, can you describe a little bit what that project was for us? I can. And still is, I should point out. Uh, so I'll tell you a brief history of it. Uh, thought it up in 1991, which is before the World Wide Web existed. Um, the Internet existed, but we couldn't imagine doing any of the things that we're doing, say, right now, for example. And, uh, but I had the idea for, I mean, when I was at graduate school, I became a historian after I read my first newspaper on microfilm and thought, okay, now I get it. All this stuff was happening at the same time was connected in all these interesting ways, and nobody knew what was going to happen. Now, you may think that getting to graduate school is a little bit late to be discovering the <laughs> fundamental <laughs> premises of, of my life's work, but a little bit slow. And so ever since then, I've tried to accelerate that learning curve for my students and letting them see the raw material of history as early as possible. And so for a long time at UVA, I had people read a year of a newspaper on microfilm, and then I had them go into the archives and use the remarkable collections of papers and things at the University of Virginia. And I had the idea that it would be wonderful if I could share that with people who weren't fortunate enough to have a research library you know, in their, on their campus or around the corner. And so I had the idea of making, of putting every piece of information about every person, soldier and civilian, black and white, male and female, uh, and a general and deserter, um, in a big archive that people could explore and that I could ship around, maybe on tape or something. I didn't know how I was going to do it. And so I started that, and I got a grant. And then the, one day a friend called me and said, Ed, you need to come down here and see this new thing. And I went to his office and he showed me something he said called the World Wide Web. So it surely won't be called that because that's too hard to say, but um, it uses the same technology we've been using here uh, to, we could put this on what they call a site and it could be seen around the world. So we started building that and in 1993, uh, which is the first year you could have a website, we did. 
And so um, we've been on there ever since, and we've had many millions of visitors, and we've won prizes, and I was in the New York Times and in Wired magazine. With, they wanted me to, <laughs> back in 1998, they wanted me to dress up in a Confederate general's uniform, and uh, I, I pointed out that I couldn't do that. Uh, but uh, they did do a fake Matthew Brady photograph of me with uh, like a fake broken glass plate. <laughs> and uh, my wife said, you finally got somebody to take a picture of you that, the way you wished you looked. Which is kind of sullen and you know deep and you know instead I'm I'm like ridiculously cheerful kind of Huck Finn sort of character and uh, but I was standing out in the rain on an interstate overlook on uh, with the, what they claimed to be the Shenandoah Valley behind me which was really Piedmont Virginia but anyway so I was looking so surly because I've been standing out there for <laughs> for an hour and a half so he could do this fake Matthew Brady thing anyway so we've. Uh, I was very dogged. I refused to quit, even though it turns out that there were just so many more records than you could imagine. We put all the OR, you know, all the photographs from Carlisle, you know, 10,000 pages of newspapers, all the census from 1860 and 1870, um, you know, uh, all the compiled service records, uh, you know, every letter and diary. And it turns out to be the county from where Jedediah Hotchkiss was from, and he had these incredible letters, but also the head of the Republican Party in Pennsylvania who's a confidant with Abraham Lincoln and Thaddeus Stevens, and where Frederick Douglass met John Brown before, you know, uh, Harper's Ferry and all this. And it turned out just to be fundamentally an insane project, but I was too stubborn to quit. And so we finished it uh, maybe last year, and as I was leaving UVA, the president there, John Castine, uh, gave a, me money to have it archived, cleaned up, made sure it was all exactly the way we wanted it, and then make sure that it's uh, set up to run indefinitely uh, off the server there in Charlottesville, which is a great act of generosity that I appreciate. So we did everything we said we would do. It took me 15 years. Um, I had to raise quite a bit of money to pay graduate students and undergraduates to do all that transcribing and stuff. But uh, it is now... You know what we like about it. If you're a, if you're not a professor or a teacher, it's just fun to look at, um, and you can see. You know, I did a talk the other day about Gettysburg, and I said, okay, let's find out what we can find out about Gettysburg, and we start with the official records, and we see what how Robert E. Lee described it in three sentences afterwards. <laughs> you know, yeah. unfortunately, the enemy got the high ground, and we were forced to retreat. You know, sort of <laughs> sort of understatement. But then we tra- traced it through all the other. OR, and then all the records of the dead and wounded, and then all the way up through uh, letters and diaries and newspapers to memoirs, and John M. Bowden uh, writing a story about it in 1885, and showing you know people how history is made, where it comes from, how we decide what's history and what's not. So it's it's used all over the world every day, and it's you know if I'd had any idea of what I was doing, I wouldn't have done it, but I'm very glad that I have. Uh, it, it's something, uh, listeners, if you want to take a look at it, it's at uh, valley.vcdh.virginia.edu. That's right. Uh, the Valley of the Shadow. And uh, it it is just a remarkable collection of records. Uh, um, it, it's hard to, to you know, overstate how innovative this was when you began this. I, I, I think today we're, we're spoiled by everything that's available. And yet nobody else has built anything remotely like this, uh, partly because they saw how crazy it was. You know, the difference is, unlike just another body of evidence, you know, 
anybody who knows anything at all about American history can look at it and go, okay, I get it. It's north and south, before, during, and after the war. And so anybody can pursue whatever they want. You, you know, you can do, you could write a book about African American history using this and nothing else, but you could also write, it's everything people would ever use to write military history. Um, and that's one place I came to understand how this all worked and how complicated it was. So, you know, I wrote that book that you'd mentioned before, In the Presence of My Enemies, using nothing but the Valley of the Shadow Project. Um, and as a result, people can go to the website and they'll find all the footnotes to The Presence of My Enemies, and they can see every primary source that I used. They'll see what I didn't take from it, you know, uh, see actually how the sausage of history is made, you know, and why did he choose this and not that and so forth. So I meant for it to be sort of, you know, to turn history from just being the person who had all the note cards to being the person who could think of something interesting to say with a, a shared set of note cards. So I appreciate your kind words about it. It's, it's been a wonderful adventure and a lot of fun. And, and you know, um, I do believe that it gives a glimpse into uh, the Civil War that you can't get if you depend on somebody else to do the interpreting for you. I have had people come up to me and say, I'm really angry at you. You kept me up at 2 o'clock in the morning last night. I started reading this darn thing, and, it, and I can't believe you let her die. And I said, I, uh, well, this is not, not, not fiction. <laughs> this really happened. So to my mind, it has a, a kind of a power that a book alone cannot because it, people are discovering for themselves and following the path they want to follow. So I, I would hope other people would do things. Now we have, you know, Library of Congress and all that sort of stuff, but these are that's a library, whereas this is really what I think of as a kind of animated archive that's driven by the fundamental questions of the Civil War. You know, how did people who didn't even know each other grow to hate each other enough to kill each other in just a matter of months? And uh, so I hear the music, so I will maybe pause and give up. We can talk a little bit more about this when we come back. We will do that. We'll come back and ask, how did the Civil War come about? We'll do that in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. (laughs) 